Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. The scripture reading for this upcoming Sunday is Daniel 7, verses 7 to 14. And this is the coming of the Son of Man, though we are going to jump in to the middle of this vision that Daniel is having when the fourth beast comes. The beasts are representing different kingdoms, and the fourth beast is a little bit different because he has these horns, and one of the horns speaks great things. And it's because of the great things that that horn speaks that ultimately... Um, in verse 11, the beast is slain. The kingdoms as a whole come to the Ancient of Days for judgment, and they are found to be lacking. It's at that point that the Son of Man comes. The Son of Man's coming is not a coming to earth, either in the Incarnation or in the Second Coming, but rather a coming to the Ancient of Days in order to be judged like the other kings and kingdoms. But the Son of Man is not found to be lacking, and instead is given dominion and a kingdom. And indeed, throughout the rest of the passage in Daniel 7, he receives worship and service that should only be given to Yahweh alone. So we're going to then see how the Son of Man comes and is given this everlasting dominion. So read with me in the scripture, Daniel 7, verses 7 to 14. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. 
And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Welcome back to the book of Matthew today. We're going to be looking this morning at Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. Up to this point, we as the reader have known who Jesus is. It's told to us in the very first verse. He is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But now he's been identified by that, not just by us and the narrator, but also by his disciples, particularly by Peter, declaring that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now it is time for Jesus to explain what that means, and in some ways subvert the expectations of what many would have assumed that that meant. Matthew 16 Verses 21 through 28 say this. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that we must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whatsoever, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to be here today. I ask that you would guide us to understand more about yourself and more about your grace. And I pray, Lord, that just as we were challenged to last week, we are again challenged today to be willing to endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ that we may be willing to accept the rejection of the world, to bear up our cross, 
knowing that the reward is far greater. May we be stirred on to love and good works. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. It's been said at times that we should never meet our heroes. When we start thinking about people and start thinking of them as being particularly great, we start getting this larger-than-life expectation of who they are, what they can do. And there's usually some flaw in that. They are humans, after all. Sometimes it's just that they don't have as much power as we expect. Sometimes it's that there's some moral defects that really makes it hard to think of them as heroes anymore. I have experienced this with a few theologians I've met once or twice. I read their books and really like them and talk to them or hear about people who talk to them and find that there's an unbecoming arrogance and rudeness in the way that they interact and deal. Now, it's not because of any moral defect. In fact, it's not because of any defect at all. But the disciples are strangely in that same situation as they are meeting their hero, Jesus. He is better than their expectations, but he's not reaching and meeting the expectations that they have in one particular way. They have the expectation from passages like Daniel 7 that there's going to be a glorious kingdom, and there will be. But first, Jesus tells them something else entirely. We begin our text in verses 21 to 23, the first major prediction of the death and resurrection. From that time forth, began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem, and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised again the third day. Jesus is beginning to teach about his mission. He's mentioned his death and resurrection before in images and signs, but now he's directly saying what that means. He's directly saying it in clear language. And when Matthew tells us from that time forth began Jesus, we're beginning to see that this isn't an isolated incident. This is his now point that he will continue throughout the rest of his earthly ministry, explaining to his disciples what must happen. Now, that's not a must, of course, but as if Jesus is chained and can't do otherwise. It's a must that's built on the fact that he will do his father's will. It's a must built on the fact that he will suffer for our sakes because there is no salvation for us without it. It's his love that holds him to the cross where he willingly gives up his life. But all the same, he must go into Jerusalem to fulfill the father's will and our salvation. 
He must suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders and religious elites, the experts in the Torah and in the scriptures, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. Those who should have been first to accept him are going to reject him and push him out. And not only is he going to suffer, but he's going to be killed and be raised again on the third day. And it seems that for the disciples, this is a complete shock. They've met their hero and they have definitively identified him as the hero they're longing for. The Christ, the son of the living God. The living God who has the power to do all sorts of things and who is giving to the Son of Man, the Christ, the nations as an inheritance. And yet here he talks about suffering. And not just suffering, but death. What type of glorious reign comes from someone who dies? Peter seems to speak that to that particular concern and question, as he says in verse 22, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Matthew introduces this by saying that Peter takes him and begins to rebuke him. Almost looks like Peter doesn't get to stop rebuking him before he's interrupted. But all the same, we have Peter with such a strong will, Peter with such respect for Jesus and such a warm heart, finding himself in such a foolish situation as to rebuke the one that he has just declared as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, be it far from thee. Perhaps a modern equivalent would be, God forbid it. This shall not by any means happen to you. Peter doesn't seem to have a perspective for the ancient of days, letting the Son of Man suffer before giving him the kingdom. His His ability to see that, his categories for understanding a suffering king and a suffering Messiah need to be built up in some way. But you will notice, Jesus doesn't mess around. He doesn't treat this in any sort of slight way. In fact, Matthew Henry seems right to remark that we do not read of anything said or done by any of his disciples at any time that Christ resented so much as this. Listen in to verse 23. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. In Matthew sixteen seventeen, 
Jesus commends Peter in one of the most possibly brilliant ways. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. But from that and the rest of the blessing that Peter receives there, we go not from, blessed are you because the Father has revealed this, but get behind me, Satan. For you have set your mind on the things of men, but the things of earth. Ouch. It's appropriate that Jesus tells Peter to get behind him. Because right after he says to get behind him, he calls him an offense, a scandal, even a stumbling block. And it's hard to stumble over something that's behind you. Get behind me, Satan. Because ultimately Peter, like Satan, is offering Jesus the gains of the kingdom without the pains. He's trying to think about a, a glory of the Messiah, and he can't stomach the idea of the Messiah suffering, and so he says, that won't happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Just as he said to Satan in Matthew 4.10, after Satan had taken him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, all these I will give to you if you bow down to me. Jesus says, I will worship, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God only, and him only shalt thou serve. Jesus submits to the suffering that is the Father's will. It is the must that he must do to fulfill all righteousness. He sets his face towards suffering at Jerusalem. Peter's focus is on those things that are of men. And it seems that in context that the things of men that G Peter is focusing on is glory, power, and status. And the things of God are obedience to him, even to the point of death even to the point of suffering. There's a significant shift then between what happens in verses 21 to 23 and what happens in verses 24 to 28. There's an introductory comment that Jesus is speaking to the disciples in verse 24, and then the rest of the passage is just Jesus speaking. The dialogue and discourse there in that the dialogue stops. So it is helpful for us to take some time to bring this together, think about what we are learning from these three verses itself. In regard to Peter, we can see quite clearly that brilliance and even receiving revelation from God can coexist with significant error with significant mistakes and even so much significant mistakes that Peter can be called Satan because he's acting like Satan. 
because he is offering the same things as Satan, tempting Jesus with the same easy path. And just briefly thinking through that, it's a reminder to evaluate our own selves. Just because we've gotten things right at some points, we don't continue to think, okay, then I know what I'm doing. To continue to focus on the things of God. Whether that particularly mean the call to suffering, whether that just means studying the word, and continuing to let it inform our thoughts and understanding. Never assuming that we understand all of God's plan, but study and read. But it also is a great reminder and a great implication for us to think through that we should never treat any man's words as fact. And yes, that does include mine. That we continue to remember that just because there is brilliance in some instances doesn't mean that everything said is true. To continue to trust Jesus and his word, not those who explain it to us. But more significantly, there are implications in regard to what we think and see about Jesus in these three verses. Jesus is to be completely and entirely trusted. But what he is slowly developing and explaining to his disciples is that he's going to suffer and die and be raised again. He's not in any way negating the glory that is to come that they have this expectation for. He's just saying that there is no true messianic glory without the messianic sufferings. He's saying that there is a need for him to suffer first and afterward receive the glory that he's already had. There's even a great hope for us because the requirement of God's mercy to us limits God's mercy to him. It can't spare him from death and still extend mercy to us. God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I thank Lewis for reading that passage earlier today and choosing that passage. God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in. And obviously, the first implication, the first thing that we must do in regard to the must of Jesus to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die is to repent and believe. It's to turn to him for our salvation. It's not to think that we can find a way to take care of our sin on our own. It deserves death. And he has taken that punishment if we believe. And isn't that even more remarkable then for those of us who have something to rejoice in and be thankful for? He suffered for us. We have hope in life. The Christ, the Son of the living God, suffered and died at Jerusalem and was raised again the third day. The last implication, though, is the one that Jesus ends up harping on in verses 24 to 28. And that is that we, as followers of this suffering Messiah, should expect suffering. 
verses 24 to 28 talk about true discipleship and its cost. We read, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Verses 24 to 28 read almost a little bit like an argument. That Jesus is making an argument, not a debate-type argument, where he's trying to beat someone else and show them that he's right, as much as just a, a logical flow. He's saying in verse 24 that there's a high cost to discipleship. But then if you notice in verses 25, 26, and 27, each verse starts with the word for giving a reason for the verse before it. And the essential point comes out that as it is with Jesus, with his suffering coming first and afterward the glory, so too with us as disciples, suffering comes first and afterward the reward. The cost of discipleship is high, but it's actually in fact an investment. A good investment that works out better us in the end. We lose what ultimately doesn't benefit, benefit us in order to have Jesus as our Lord and eternal life with him. And Jesus begins this in verse 24 by expressing the cost of discipleship. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus may be talking just to the twelve, but he talks in very general terms. If any man, if any one will come after me, will become my disciple and follow behind me, this is what he must then do. And we heard this language before. Turn back with me to Matthew 10. There Jesus is speaking. It's commonly called the, the mission discourse. He's sent out the 12 into the towns of Israel in order to heal the sick and proclaim and, and to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he continues to give them instructions on everything that's going to happen, he eventually tells them that what they are going to do is not going to be met with immediate success. There's going to be persecution. And in verses 38 to 39, he says this. And he that taketh not his cross 
and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. When we were in Matthew 10 thinking about taking up the cross and following, thinking about the possibility of finding life and losing it, we made a point to say that this is a call to suffer the world's rejection and possibly even die at the hands of that world. If it meant such a thing in Matthew 10, how much more as we get to Matthew 16, and it's followed on the heels of Jesus saying that he's going to suffer and die? At this point in Matthew, Matthew hasn't told us that Jesus dies by crucifixion. He doesn't, hasn't told us that there's a cross in which his life ends. But even still, we know that the cross isn't a cute necklace. It's a device that the Romans used to humiliate, to torture, and to execute. To bear up the cross, to take the cross, is to take up the very thing on which we might die, and to take up humiliation and rejection. Denying ourselves, taking up the cross, and following him shows us that being a Christian and being a disciple, and Ken was correct last week to point out that there's not a distinction between the terms, is not an easy thing. It's easy in the sense that it's not our merit that makes us Christians, but it's hard in the sense that to be with Christ means to also be rejected by the world. It can be very discouraging. But throughout history, within the Bible and without history, God's people have faced rejection time and time again. But as these 12 are standing there, hearing that the Messiah, that they expected to have a glorious reign, and who will have a glorious reign, is first going to suffer and die. They seem to miss the, the statement of being raised again. But this, they're going to suffer and die, and that they're supposed to take up their cross to follow after him to the place of execution. What keeps them there? What's to keep them from going back to their fishing nets and tax booths? What's to keep us there? Verse 25. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. This one verse already makes the high cost of verse 24 essentially nothing. A light and momentary affliction that worketh in us a far more exceeding weight of glory. 
could spend some time thinking about the fact that the only life that's really worth living is the life lived for Jesus. But it does seem that Jesus's mind is more focused in on a life that transcends death. And if we look at other language from Matthew 10, he's talking about whether you lose your life or whether you fear the one who can, after destroying the body, destroy and cast both body and soul into hell. Whoever saves his life, whoever goes on the quote-unquote safe path of self-preservation, preserving our own interests and agenda, ultimately destroy ourselves, soul, and body. But those of us who embark on this dangerous path of bearing up our cross and accepting the rejection of the world, accepting whatever suffering may indeed come, the dangerous path is actually a safeguard of soul and body. The one who will lose his life for the sake of Jesus will find it. Will find a life worth living. And will find life in the presence of Jesus forever. A life that doesn't end at our bodily death, but true life that begins in the presence of Jesus and continues on forever. Because again, verse 26, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The word soul is the same, is translating the same Greek word as life in verse Verse 25. And there's two questions then asked about this life. What will a man give? Or what will a man profit? If he gain the whole world and lose his own soul, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What is the value of the whole world in comparison to life in Jesus that doesn't end at death, but only increasingly gets better. What is the value of the whole world in comparison to true inner life? You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. It's appropriate to say that the idea of verse 26 is a, a comparison of values that says on the one hand that giving up this life for anything this world has to offer is a bad bargain. Nothing in this world is worth giving up a life lived for Jesus, is worth giving up the life that only Jesus can give through his death and resurrection. But on the other hand, it tells us that that life is a steal at any price. Since nothing in this world compares to the value of it, then no matter how much we'd have to give up, no matter how many sacrifices we do, no matter how many crosses we have to bear, it's all worth it. Because Jesus is all worth it. Let's have the courage to take up our cross. 
to find our life and identity in Jesus such that we are sharing in his rejection and humiliation and death as is necessary and needful. That we not think any cost too much to bear, but continue on faithfully enduring. Knowing this in verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then shall he reward every man according to his works. Peter and likely the other disciples are doubting the glory because the suffering is there or doubting the suffering because they're expecting the glory. But the glory is guaranteed. Jesus here guarantees the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father. He'll come with his angels. And the goal here is not for him to come with his angels and be judged by the Ancient of Days. But it's rather after he's been given the kingdom by the Ancient of Days that he's coming back to judge the world. And then he shall reward every man according to his works. It's a general term that you'd see throughout the Bible. In this context, the works in question seem to be enduring faithfully. And Jesus seems to want to encourage us that with the future vindication, we have every reason to continue to endure to not think that repentance and belief and bearing up the cross of Jesus are too high of costs because there will be glory and there will be judgment. Son of man will come and reward every man according to his works. This, of course, doesn't negate the idea of justification by faith alone. The point that we continue to see is that repentance and belief are combined in Scripture such that you can't really have one without the other. And so it is fair to say that he will judge every man according to his works because faith does produce works. But he will judge us in that way. We have the call to continue to endure in our faith knowing that regardless of how much suffering there is in the world, we still have that plea. Though it's different texts, and so then is in different ways, this is very similar to what Ken was telling us last week too. We have an exceeding glory based off of a temporal affliction. And so we don't lose heart. Outer man wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. So we keep on telling others. We keep on being faithful to Jesus and his word. And regardless of how much the world signs it to be humiliating and embarrassing for us to say such things, we continue bearing the cross of Christ and the rejection of the world that he himself bore. And Jesus caps off his argument in verse 28. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death 
till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He's implying that the glory is near. And the point of clarifying that the glory is near is to further give evidence that it's certain so as to give further evidence of the fact that we should willing to endure for the sake of the glory of the kingdom. Some won't taste death till they see it. To a degree, this is connected to the fact that there will be a glimpse of the glory shown in the transfiguration in chapter 17. But it also seems to be the case that when the Ancient of Days is said to give all authority to the Son of Man, Jesus also says at the end of Matthew, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God, according to the author of Hebrews, enthronement language, while he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. While he waits for the kingdom to come in full, he still is enthroned at the right hand of God. But the disciples are faced with this. They had a hero they read about or heard read, talked about a Messiah who would come in glory, have the nations as an inheritance. And he doesn't meet their expectations. He's not what they were expecting. And what they haven't found out yet at this point is that he's actually better than their expectations. The glory is guaranteed by his suffering. The future that they're hoping for is still a certain hope, and they can have a part in it because though they are vile and sinful, though we are vile and sinful, he suffered for sinners like us. May we see the glory that is coming, yeah, that comes after the suffering, as such a way, a way that we are willing to endure and suffer. And may we be able to say with Paul in Philippians 3, 7 to 11, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Oh, Father, remind us that you and the reward that you set aside for those who are in Christ is worth it all. May we continue to count the cost and consider all things as loss for the sake of Christ. Lord, you have given us much in this world to enjoy, and we do enjoy it in thankfulness to you. But we ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts 
and lives. So we would never hold those things so dearly. And what things we had counted as gain, we would count as loss. For what shall they gain us if we lose our own soul? For the sake of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, may we take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow after him. Give us, give us your spirit, through your spirit, the grace to endure this, to act in this way. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>